and welcome to Movie Go Round, a film discussion podcast that rotates between different themes every single week on a five-week schedule. This week's theme is Future Classics. Hello, everybody. I'm Brett Stewart. Joining me on this lovely evening, Nicole Davis. How are you? I'm good. I have my wine. I have my fan. I have been listening to the soothing hypnotic tones of Werner Herzog. So all is well. <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, I got my claustrophobia going on tonight. It's going to be fun. David Luzader, how are you? I am here. I am glad that we are in this situation in which we might be speaking together. And so soothing. So yes. very, very soothing. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so we did indeed. We watched a, a Werner Herzog film. So first, let's actually break down A, what future classics is, and then B, what next week's movie is going to be. So future classics is when one of the hosts has the opportunity to bring a film to the panel that they determine will be a classic in some capacity, and it has to have come out in the last decade. So at this point of recording, 2009 and onward, that we're getting pretty close to losing 2009. So this film was from 2010. It is eligible. Uh, next week's movie, however, though, to keep you updated, that way you can follow along and watch with us. This film is on Netflix, so and I don't anticipate it leaving because it's a Netflix movie. So uh, watch along if you would like to. Uh, next week is Around the World. That is an international pick. And for my pick, it is my turn to do Around the World. I'm going to pick something that I have never seen before. And I am doing that to light a fire under myself to watch it. Because I think it'll be a good discussion. We are going to watch 2018's uh, Alfonso Cuaron's Roma. So that is our pick for next week. Yeah. I can pick movies not in English, guys. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So I've been been meaning to watch this. So this is great. Yeah, it's the kind of movie where every single time I want to sit down and watch it, I'm like, do I want to be sad? Not right now. <laughs> but I'm willing to put aside that two hours this week because I, I've heard nothing but amazing things. So Roma, that is what we are watching. Again, it'll always be on Netflix. It's a Netflix movie. But this week, Cave of Forgotten Dreams came out in 2010. It was Nicole's pick for a future classic. Where Herzog gains exclusive access to film inside how do I say the cave name? Is it Chauvet? Chauvet, I think. Chauvet? Chauvet's Caves of Southern France. And he captures the oldest known pictorial creations of humanity. Nicole, why did we watch Cave of Forgotten Dreams? Why is it a future classic? Uh, well, <laughs> one, um, it's a Werner Herzog movie. And the man while his quality can vary wildly, his films are always interesting. Um, he likes to, he likes to do films, whether they're narrative films or documentaries, he likes to do films about these, you know, very ambitious, uh, protagonists and extreme places and, uh, you know, he's done documentaries in Antarctica. He's done a documentary on top of a live volcano. And 
This one, he's in a cave under millions of tons of rock, looking at the oldest known paintings man has ever done. And, you know, I felt like, A, we haven't done a documentary before. Um, and I wanted to try to introduce that a little bit. But B, you know, this is something, it's documenting something monumental. It's by a extremely well-respected filmmaker. And I thought it was kind of fascinating. You know, there's some talking heads, but it's also a lot of long, lingering shots of the caves with nobody saying anything and sort of letting the pictures speak for themselves. And I feel like that's something enduring. That's something that can carry on and generations from now people can come back and look at this movie and say oh wow. you know yes this was the the cinematic landmark documenting you know this discovery very cool well and again as you said this is not only our first documentary on movie go round this is our first documentary in three years doing movie podcasts we never did one on geek cinema either so yeah I don't think the geek cinema format would have led itself to uh, to that. Yeah, not necessarily. Uh, but this was really fascinating for me to watch. I've never seen uh, a Werner Herzog film. So this was kind of an introduction to me in terms of, at the very least, his soothing dulcet tones. And they they are dulcet. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about though the, the the context of this film. That this is a you know this is a cave in southern France that uh, was discovered in the nineties to have these these pictorial drawings all throughout the caves that are the oldest carbon dated uh, art ever to be found, upwards to thirty five I believe million years old. Well, um, no, 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 no. The the drawings are only thirty two thousand years old. Oh, I'm sorry, thirty two thousand. Duh. Okay, <laughs> that would have been really old. It um, sure would have, boy. And they're like almost perfectly preserved because there's this thin layer of calcite that's been dripping over them for centuries. Right, right. Now, now, and they were discovered, and very quickly, almost immediately, by the French government, just respectedly you know sealed off um from really any sort of outside interruption which is why i think the first element of this lending credence to your pick as a future classic is you know herzog's team was given permission to film in there in a very limited capacity by the french ministry of cultural affairs and i wouldn't be surprised if they don't let anyone do it after this i don't know why you would have to well, they even, uh, I think what one of the caves, another one they discovered, they um, shut it down entirely yeah. because because mold was growing inside thanks to humans just even oh, being in the same space. Yeah, the human breath in the area from the influx in tourists. Uh, now, fortunately, they actually built a, a to-scale model of this place not that far away in southern france so if you want to see it you technically can see it and the model looks beautiful like i'll, I'll link to the smithsonian piece in our in our show notes but it, it's pretty sweet i would walk through that and be just as captivated um but going back to herzog there's this opening sequence in the film that's all shot on on gopros the first 20 minutes of the, sh- of the film is shot on gopros gopros and then the remainder of the film when the technology was available to them was shot on 3D cameras. Now, 
when they're shooting on the GoPros, the first time they're in the cave, the French had told them, you have like an hour in there. <laughs> it was incredibly limited. We're locking the door behind you because these, these, you know, these proofed doors need to not be open to mess with the climate levels within this cave. And we're going to pull you right back out after a certain amount of time. So that must be an immense amount of pressure as a filmmaker and an artist to capture what you need. Now, granted, he was able to go back with better equipment later on, but still. Yeah, yeah. The first exploratory thing when they're they're just like, all right, you know, go in, scope around and you'll figure out what you need to really shoot in there within our limitations. So, yeah, the first time they went in was for an hour and they total amount of time they got was i think 28 hours they were allowed four hours a day yep four hours a day for a week because the you know partly because they didn't want to spoil the environment of cave you know and they had to stay on like this two foot wide catwalk and they couldn't touch anything and the only lights they used could be cold powered by battery packs on their belts you know they couldn't have any kind of generators in there so you know, it's very different than how a lot of documentaries are shot, particularly his. His are usually, you know, these lush, beautiful, super high quality photography um, sort of affairs. But yeah, there were such high levels of radon and carbon dioxide in the caves, too, that it wasn't terribly healthy for them to right. be There's in there for longer than four hours a day. There's a whole section of the cave, too, that they couldn't stay into for, I don't know, probably more than half an hour. Uh, because tree roots were get down into it and just pumping it full of CO2, which, by the way, is not great for the body. Yeah, and if you spend too long in there, you're going to start rambling to Werner Herzog about your mythical dreams of bears and, and horses and stuff like that. If you've previously also been a circus performer, can we talk about the people he interviews? <laughs> um he has some fascinating people on camera. He has this, either he's got a talent for finding them or he only ever uses the footage of them. But <laughs> he has a talent for finding the most oddball people possible in uh, wherever he films. I couldn't notice anybody beyond Einstein because <laughs> Einstein is in this film. It's just that man is Einstein and it's distracting. Are you talking about the man that attempts to show us a a spear? Yes, yeah. in a painfully awkward sequence to show you how a spear javelin thrower thingy would work in 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 prehistoric times. Yes, and even and even Herzog's like, but it would be better than that if someone right. else they could did throw it, it right? better than you, right? And he's like, yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, but there. So there was this archaeologist that has spent quite a bit of time in the caves. And um, and often has surprisingly profound things to say. Um, this was a man that was previously a circus performer on a unicycle juggling. There is a different man dressed up like an Inuit um, who plays the Star Spangled Banner on a replica flute he has created of a flute discovered in a site roughly around that time period. The, the weirdest part of that one is he's like, I came up with this little tune and then he proceeds to play a song 
he, he plays the Star Spangled Banner and is like, it sounds like the Star Spangled Banner. I'm like, no, no it, it is the Star Spangled Banner. Banner. <laughs> I know, sound- he acts like he's discovered it. Right. It's like, I came up with this too. No, you didn't, my dude. <laughs> and, and then he's, there's he's a third one. credited as an experimental archaeologist. Yes, he talks about that. Oh, I love it. <laughs> oh, he's definitely had like a guest appearance on Man vs. Wild. And, uh, right. and then, then there's the... There's a guy who used to be the head scientist there who is now a master perfumer. Oh my and gosh. Has come to what a man. The cave so they can reproduce it. And it's amazing because it actually talks about how this man is discussing how when they look for these caves, they walk along the sides of mountains and they're looking for, for small air drafts coming out of, out of crevices to, to delineate that there might be a cave. And he's like, well, they can do that, but I can smell it. And then it cuts to, to him meandering around this cave, taking deep breaths of everything. He, um, he also talks before they show that sequence. He's talking for a while and then very obviously forgets what he's talking about and just comes <laughs> to a dead stop. I love it. But I also love that they are explaining in conjunction with this man running around sniffing the cave. They're explaining that the cave has a distinct prehistoric odor, something that they've actually tried to replicate in the replica tourist attraction you can go to, which which I later learned they did um, at the time of this movie. It was being built, but they did pump some sort of odor into that place. Um, so how this man is sniffing beyond that, I don't know. Um, but he, he has a talent. He has a talent. I mean, so, you know, I credit him. <laughs> a good nose you know this that can be a talent master perfumers need such things and like sommeliers have very refined you know sense of smell and taste and you know i believe that that he would be able to smell things except that they've told you over and over again throughout this documentary that everything is covered in this layer of calcite that's been dripping for centuries if not millennia and so it doesn't smell like anything in there right <laughs> much yeah, so so let's dig into so some of our <laughs> um, let's dig into some of our discussion topics. We have a ton of them for this episode. So, the, as again, this is our first documentary, which I just realized is technically true if you don't count for bonus episodes, because I did just realize that we did the fire festival. Oh, right, right. Um, yeah, that wasn't for this podcast, though. I guess yeah. it was on the feed, but it was on. A it was podcast. not part of our numbers. Yeah. yeah. So, what is the importance of docu- documentary cinema as a whole? And I and I mean, obviously, the the, the easy answer is we can document things. But <laughs> I mean, that's on a, the name, right? But but I, but I I think on a, on a much more important level, there there's something to capturing nonfiction in a, in a medium that's not written that allows. That allows movement and a different way of showing nonfiction and historical information. Um, this is a film all about stationary things, yet I found it almost imperative that I learned about it through film. I learned more about this that through watching them explore these caves than I think I would have if I had looked at photos of all of these pieces of art. So I think that that first of all, that's a very important piece. Well, yeah, we'll get into a little bit. There's also music playing, which I think is, you know, music sets a tone. Uh, I think documentaries definitely have a place in, in telling nonfiction stories. Um, 
and and showing us, I think, parts of the world that we wouldn't see otherwise. Um, I, I find documentaries to be to be fascinating. I, I got a chance to make one in college. Uh, it is a dream of mine to to make another one uh, at some point in my life. And I, I just think about you know, there's a trove of them on Netflix that are fascinating. You will learn about. We talked about sommeliers. There is a whole documentary about trying to become a sommelier, and they just they give us an insight into these things around us that we don't normally get to see, or it gets us a chance to tell a story. Like uh, there's a, the recently released um, origin story uh, by by Kulap Vilaisak, which is about just about her heritage and uh, trying to, uh, I guess, connect to it. Yeah, and another discussion topic we have attached to this is how important is it to get the shot and what makes capturing a visual worth the risks and i think in this film in particular an instance of that is at the very end of the cave there is only one part of the cave that has anything that even represents a human and it is this half half woman's body half centaur bull thing i got a bison's head bison's head right and, and and it's hanging on 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 a on a piece from the ceiling and the they can't build the walk the catwalk they have inside out far enough to get to it based on the fragility of the ground around it so as a result of that it's hard to see it and the tour guide even said tour guide the uh the incredibly qualified archaeologist even says you know sorry <laughs> you you can't get over there you're not going to be able to get this in your film and then my immediate my immediate thought is, let me put the camera on a stick. And that's exactly what they did when they came back. And I was so glad they did because I'm sure there are so many risks with bringing equipment down there and hovering equipment over, you know, hollowed ground like that, that you can't touch the ground. And they made that risk and got a really great shot of that piece of the cave that I so badly wanted to see. And I was glad I kind of got teased. Like I saw it and then they brought that full circle maybe a half hour later. Well, I mean, I, I, this was my question and I was thinking more in terms of the physical risks um, that they were taking and that a lot of documentary filmmakers take, especially ones doing, you know, quote unquote, extreme uh, places, you know, like I said, he's he's been to Antarctica. He's been on top of a live volcano. You know, he's put his life at risk many times. He's had a gun pointed at his head uh, more than once, I believe, in trying to film in various places. You know, and what uh, I'm trying to think, not necessarily what is it? What is it worth? What makes that worthwhile to people? What, you know, like if you're shooting a documentary, oh gosh, what was it called? There was, there was one about climbing recently. Oh, Free Solo? Yes, Free Solo, where the filmmakers were very much endangered a great deal of the time in order to get these spectacular shots of this climber. And why is that? Why not just, you know, be off at a safe distance and use your telephoto lens? Why is it so important that it be, you know, this super high quality 
image from as close as possible. What what makes it worth that kind of risk? Uh, it's a uh, uh, idiocy, I think. Is the oh, <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, I don't, I don't believe it. Is I think there is something about putting yourself at unnecessary risk, and you know, people will be like, ah, oh, they're artists, they're auteurs, they're doing it for the story. Ah, blah, 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 blah. And you brush up against this in, in journalism all the time, though I think there's a difference between journalism and, and documentary uh, filmmaking, personally. Uh, I don't know. Brett, what do you think? So <laughs> I was going to go, I'll, I'll move my journalism soapbox a little bit um, <laughs> off to the side. Because, I mean, I do think there's a, it is imperative that somebody is willing to go down into a scary, claustrophobic cave um, and get these images right. Like we I have, we have this a, is like this is the thing that terrifies Brett. I There's don't an like caves. Space. I don't like caves. That's why I was in our Slack saying we should really watch the descent after this. Um, that'd be an interesting <laughs> double feature. Um, but like for example, one of Nicole's other uh, discussion topics that ties into this is: Are there any documentaries with rewatch value? And for me, it, it you know I think of things like like the Cove. Um, Blackfish. Those are both fish documentaries that came to my mind for some reason. Um, Neither of them are fish documentaries. They're both mammals. Oh, whatever. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> in any case, um, those are both of those risked quite a bit to, to to show a really messed up side of 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 these parts of the world and these industries, and opened up eyes to it. Sometimes it takes a documentary or something that is popular in pop media to um, open the world's eyes to something that is, you know, a problem. And, and this obviously is not that kind of documentary, but I think that can be the case a lot of the time. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think in the, in the, in the case of free solo, I think there's like something about wanting to put the viewer right there where he is, you know, and it's not the same doing that with a telephoto lens. Now, I want to view it only through a telephoto lens. Thank you very much. I want nothing to do with whatever that man involves himself <laughs> with. Um, well, there is a difference of like, as we can see from this wide shot half a mile away versus like, this is exactly, not exactly what it feels like, but it's like this, in a way, it's like you are there with him. You are right there in the in the meat of everything. Uh and you know, it seems to get results. You know, I don't think we'd be talking about free solo if you watched the climbs from the ground with an extreme zoom lens. Yeah, another another good example is as long as we're also tying this into other films that I think are also worth a rewatch is um. And I would watch this again first and foremost. It was fascinating to me. Um, might have to let it marinate for a while, but I would someday. Um, Man on Wire. You know, that was oh, a yeah. huge documentary a decade ago, and. Uh, a really good one. And that is a fascinating documentary because James Marsh puts you on that wire. Now, granted, he's using archival footage because it happened in the 70s. For those unfamiliar, a dude walked on a wire across the World Trade Center buildings because why not? And uh, that is one where it's just, it's so zany and crazy. And it's something that you yourself would never do that to get in that person's shoes through a documentary is something that's captivating. Uh, you could say the same thing for. James Cameron being the dude that's like, I should go to the bottom of the ocean because I'm James Cameron. I'm not going to do that, but I'm glad I can watch him do it. So I think yeah, that's part of it. Yeah, I guess I guess there's something to be said for the immediacy of 
being close to being in that person's shoes. Um, Mm -hmm. And you really get more of the impact, especially, you know, when people are making some sort of social commentary is you get a lot more of an emotional impact, the more immediate you can make the story. Um, But, you know, with this one, it's, um, you know, Werner Herzog's taking health risks just to show images on a cave wall. It's not, it's not putting you in the experience of anybody except maybe painters from 32,000 years ago. And I mean, is that even really possible to put, no matter how immediate he tries to make it, is it really possible to, to put yourself in those shoes to even imagine what that's like? You you can tell that, you know, he saw these caves at some point and it was a profound experience for him. And it seems to be oh, yeah, for utterly captivating for him. Yeah, yeah, it seems to be for for a number of people. Um, and he wanted to share that experience, which I think is cool. Um, you know, I think I, I just I think for him, it was uh, this is something that he felt the world needs to see and found an avenue in which he could could share it because i think also that what they allow a, a few visitors for a couple weeks out of the year like they are super strict on it most people are never going to see it or really know that it exists even with this recreation and this is kind of as as close as most of us will ever have a chance of getting yeah and, and there's a there's a whole through line in this movie about connecting to those before us um, to, to kind of touch on what Nicole was, was bringing up and the, the archeologists do it, you know, like I think the most powerful moment for me, which you can't get from, in my opinion, something that's not a documentary that can walk me through and show me this is one of the only identifiable pieces of art in the caves that you can tell was all done by a specific artist was an artist that uh that imprinted his handprint many many times on the wall in in this red um this red i guess it's not really paint it's, i mean it is paint but it's like crushed up berry juice i don't know what i don't know what they used um in any case you see these these red handprints that the color has stayed over time you can see where his fingers were and the the archaeologist mentions not only have we mapped this wall to know where he started and where he ended, we know a lot about this guy, or at least some. We know we know how tall he was. We know that his little finger on one of his hands was crooked. And we can use that information as we walk through these caves to see where he had imprinted his hands again. And to me, a handprint's a handprint to me, uh, especially on a cave wall from 35 thousand years ago and the fact that we can walk through this cave as they then do and show us how this guy 35,000 years ago walked from point A to point B that was captivating me that was absolutely amazing because you that is a perfect example for me at least of putting context to the actions of someone or at least just movement and and a visceral nature to the actions of someone from that long ago. Um, it felt more real than just looking at old cave drawings. Well, yeah. And then and you stop and think about that, you know, they said that 
some of the artists made more than one of these images. And it suddenly occurred to me, you know, nowadays, say we hire, you know, we want a mural done. We hire one person to design, you know, the entirety of the wall of a building or, um, you know, the inside of, of some important space. And it would never, I don't think it would occur to us nowadays to hire multiple artists to do the same work. I mean, sometimes people do, but most often they're like, oh, you know, we can get such and such prestigious person to do the wall of our of our facility. And so it's like this, this cave was a cooperative effort, either over time or, you know, they had six people in there at once painting various things in different parts of the cave, you know, and it's kind of fascinating to stop and think about it. It's like, did they talk to each other while they worked? Did they, were they, you know, so focused on what they were doing that they're like, "Og, shut up. I'm trying to concentrate on the whiskers here, on the <laughs> some, lion, you know. Some cavemen do this thousands of years ago, and it's totally great. My friends and I get drunk and get a couple <laughs> of cans of spray paint, and we're criminals. I don't get it. Speaking speaking of the whole caveman thing, I do want to point out, as we call them artists, and some of it is, most of it is shockingly good. Every caveman in this cave from 35,000 years ago is a better artist than I am. Um, <laughs> my God. There's some like genuinely beautiful stuff. Like, I think there's a line, like, there's a couple times in the movie where either, either Herzog or an archaeologist will be standing next to something and they're like, look how beautiful it is. And I'm like, that's a stick figure. But then there's times when they're standing next to something that's truly stunning. Um, and I think it's, it's one of those things where you can put aside the fact of how old and, and, and how cool that is and how special that is and just how genuinely good a lot of it is. Um, you know, there's this wall they keep returning to that is one of the other pieces they suspect to be done by a single artist of all these horse heads, like in a giant uh, stampede, essentially. And it is, it's stunning. Like the, just the shade work on, on like the line work on these horses is really impressive. Horses are really hard to draw, man. You know, <laughs> like everything in here is really hard to draw. And I was thinking about it because there's so many animals in here. So, so just for context yeah. for listeners, we have horses, bears, rhinos, lions. only lions. The only pictorial drawing of a of a panther from this time period, uh, or on a cave drawing ever, rather. Um, so many different stuff, and that's just to name a few. And I'm just thinking to myself, if I was to stand in that area today, <laughs> I would be lucky if, flew in a, if flying over in a drone or a helicopter or what have you, if I saw any of that, that must have looked, that sparked my imagination as well. Is like, what did this area look like where a people that were not as mobile as you can be today could see all of that so much and just well, how, how vibrant that area must have been? Yeah, those animals lived there. I, was, I, I thought about it that at the beginning of the documentary. I'm like, rhinos, wow. How did they get to Africa and back when they're on foot to go see rhinos? And it's, no, they, it was Europe, that part of Europe was glaciated 32,000 years ago. And there, you could walk from London to Paris if you wanted to. And there were mammoths and there were rhinoceros. And 
ibex, you know, walking around out there in in bison and great herds. And so, you know, you can actually see those things back then. And of course, that st- makes you stop and think about the horrible things that man has done to his environment. And it's sad <laughs> and you sit and it's, it's depressing. So I try not to think about it too much. Um, but I mean, the one thing I kept going back to is I'm looking at these lions and they're so beautifully proportioned and they kind of overlap. And I was wondering at first, you know, why they were overlapping. It's like, did they run out of space? And I'm like, oh no, they're, they're overlapping to show that they're all together in like a pride and, you know, they belong in this grouping and looking at these beautifully rendered, even though they're not terribly detailed, but they're still, they get the shape exactly right of the lion's head and thinking about these, you know, supposedly master Renaissance artists who couldn't make a decent house cat. And (laughs) just like, (laughs) what happened? What happened in the 30,000 years between, you know, when these lions were painted and when these guys were trying to paint a cat and really sucking at it, even well, though they're yeah, supposedly but, but, master but, artists. But we don't see anything in the in these cave paintings where they're making, you know, some of the Renaissance scenes. <laughs> like, well, no, they, they can make I mean, a mean horse, but I'm not, you know. <laughs> it's not a sophisticated composition, but they're the renderings themselves are surprisingly accurate. And yet, yeah. you know, it's these supposed masterworks, they're, they're not, it's weird. You know, <laughs> I fell down this whole rabbit hole of looking at, you know, master painters and like the, the stuff from like the 1300s and 1400s where everybody has these elongated faces with these long, narrow noses and tiny. Yeah. Eyes. All, yeah religious icons and the baby Jesus has a weird like adult face and bizarre <laughs> bodies because nobody could paint a baby worth a damn back in the Renaissance. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and also the film does an awesome job with, with showing you not only this wide variety of species, um, but just putting further context, to the fact of all the extinct, all the now extinct species that were, a part of this of this ecosystem i mean there's right. cave yeah, the bears mammoths as our friend <laughs> wolf will say who is the man that dressed up like an inuit um of course his name is a wolf uh but there's there's cave lions there's cave bears there's cave hyenas there's hyenas guys <laughs> like it's rem- and by the way look up the cave bears at some point it's a big bear it's a very large bear well, I mean, um, anybody who's read Clan of the Cave Bear would know that, Brett. So just, uh, yeah, I don't know. So there, it shows you, it puts you in this world in such a unique and beautiful way. And I, and I do think that is what makes this film particularly poignant for me. Um, now, David, you put something interesting in our docket that some of this is definitely manipulative in the sense that I assume you mean like the heartbeat sound effect, music, yeah. that sort of thing. Um, so is that telling a story or creating a story? Okay. Uh, I think this is a very interesting topic. Okay. Uh, so, look, I, I like this documentary. I think it's fascinating. I don't see why it couldn't have just been on the History Channel in an afternoon. Because well, they don't show actual history things anymore. I get that. National Geographic, that's a better location for it. it it's about Nazis, the History Channel will show. That, but right, exactly. The History, this is a history the, the Channel movie, though. Things. Uh back in, back in the day. But they're like, that seems like <laughs> we're, we're connecting... We're connecting with the heartbeat 
if you, if you listen, we can hear on, and it starts playing this heartbeat sound effect. I'm like, stop, stop, stop. That is not documentary filmmaking. <laughs> you are trying to elicit an emotion. You're doing a lot of music and that's like, that's fine. But don't try to be like, we're connecting with the heartbeat of humanity by standing here and showing me a crew member just looking around <laughs> in the light. <laughs> and it's like, I kind of thought that was, that was interesting. Yeah. I mean, he is. He is creating it to some extent. I think it's he wants he wants to convey the feeling of what it's like to be standing in there. Yeah. And that's yeah. why he's okay with the tremendously overblown score in places. It's so um, overblown. It's, it's very intense. really intrusive in some places. In some places it's fine. And you can tell that, you know, they've got like these choral background and like um, like organ and cello and whatnot and it's it's clearly supposed to be you know this sort of evoke a, a reverent religious feeling almost of a sacred space yeah um, it's the, the, re- the reason that but, I say I mean, you know how do you convey the feeling I mean they didn't have they didn't have equipment sensitive enough to be able to pick up a heartbeat if you were standing it silently in well the cave. i i doubt you could actually hear your own heartbeat in that cave i'm just gonna throw that out there. I, I actually don't doubt it if you go into a, a you know a sound baffled room like a truly sound baffled room you can hear the blood rushing in your ears you can hear your own heartbeat yes and it drives men insane oh you give me the willies um yeah. And well, so now I had something in our docket though that was like the other side of this, which is I was glad there were <laughs> even cheaper things, right? Like I fully expected when we had this archaeologist, and this is one scene that went on for a little too long, but she was walking us through and she's like, Look at these horses, hear them whinny. Look at this lion, hear it roar. And we went through like six animals like this. It was a little long. Um, I fully expected the documentary to start like overlaying either sound effects of that happening and slash or stock footage of that happening. And not once is there a reenactment when this was right no. for it. And I am thrilled about that. No, but there is like a weird, they do it once when it's like, we're talking about the, the shadows on the cave. And he's like, Fred Astaire. And they show us a, a minute and a half of a yeah, press that was air so bizarre. Uh, which is totally inconsistent with the rest of the film because they never <laughs> do anything like that again. Uh, I'm, I mean, I'm glad they don't they don't do any of that cheesy stuff of like showing, the, you know, the, the 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 ancient man painting on the cave wall sort of thing. But at the yeah. same, like part part of the reason, yeah, part of the reason that I, I call this like National Geographic. It's because like there's not there's no story here, and that's fine. Not every documentary needs a story, but I don't know. There's no there's the, the I, I I felt a lack of a narrative arc, and for for me that I don't know that I don't connect as much with the documentary where there's not a, a story for me to to dive into. Yeah, I can. And I that's can me. understand that. I can understand that. That that kind of goes down to the like part of the last thing I put in our docket, which was about, you know, can can documentaries ever be a completely objective medium? Because whatever you do, no matter how much footage you get, you know, you decide how to edit it together and what sort of arc you want to take the viewers through. So you get to decide what exactly the viewers see and from what angles and 
what you tell them about what they're seeing. Mm-hmm. And do you make it a do you make it a narrative story? Do you make it do you just turn it into a timeline and go from, you know, the beginning to from an early time to a later time and just track every bit in between? You know, it's yeah. how you put it together that bring that takes you through the documentary. And Herzog's just kind of he's he's kind of ping ponging back and forth between the artistic expression and whether it's you know the artists are are expressing themselves through art or if they're being documentarians themselves and they're just documenting what they see around them and painting it on the walls for for what purpose we don't know for future generations to see to uh, just to say entertainment kind of thing yeah entertainment yeah is it is it you know so they can play the torches around the walls and make it look like the animals are moving you know what a uh, proto cinema uh, you know as herzog yes. says but I, you can tell that herzog's interest is squarely in why they painted it what it meant to the people who painted it what were they thinking what's what does it say about the nature of humanity? He's super interested in the nature of humanity and and how we communicate with each other, and that's crystal clear. I mean, you could you could call this a documentary about Werner Herzog in a way because it's he's he's in the whole thing. There's no way for him to be out of it in a lot of ways. Number one, because the the movie it being a history of things that are thousands of years old. It re- it requires some talking. Right. It required some explanation. Yeah. There there is but, no there is no story t- intrinsically in sorry, the cave yeah, itself. Uh, there's no story intrinsically in the cave itself. Uh, no, it's not like tell. the story of it's not the supposed story of Og and what Og's life was like and what a day in the life of Og might have been and what he right. might have been thinking and going in. You know, they say Og is the the guy with the crooked finger who's handprint is is in a bunch of places in the cave you know but i mean it does it does inspire these interesting questions and i think that's that's part of the responsibility of a documentarian is to ask things that the viewer might ask you know like one of the really interesting parts that you learn is that these paintings were all painted in the darkest parts of the cave there are none, you know, the old entrance had been a rock, a landslide had closed the original entrance of the caves like 20,000 years ago. And that's why they weren't discovered for so long. Um, but there are no paintings anywhere near the entrance to the cave. It wasn't until you got past the part where natural sunlight would have fallen that the paintings start. And so, you know, this is something where people had to deliberately come in and bring in artificial light in order to paint these things and why. And, you know, he, this is clearly something that he knew that the viewer would ask. And so that's something that he tries to figure out as well for us. I think that is part of the documentarian's responsibility is to try to answer some of the questions that would be obvious for the viewer to ask but Herzog goes right on ahead and asks the stuff that's obvious only to him and nobody else <laughs> like do you think this is the beginning of the human soul because <laughs> <laughs> that's just the sort of guy that Werner Herzog is 
Yeah, I mean, there, there's several points at which there are opportunities for a filmmaker to take a more linear narrative arc um, that I would have liked to have seen in various capacities. For instance, there's a there's a note. And it's it's almost like a footnote um, in this 90 minute movie, like 75 minutes into it. Like, oh, yeah, by the way, there's an altar in the back of this thing with a giant bear skull on it. So maybe it was a religious place. And I would have loved to have known more about that. I would have loved a talking head telling me about what that ceremony might have looked like. No, I think we know everything that they know about that. And I'm glad they didn't make that a focus because it would have been like, it could have been this. It also could have been one guy was carried, was tired of carrying a bear head around and put it down. (laughs) Okay, that's fair. That's fair, but but at the same time, like they did hint at it, saying that there was incense around it and that sort of thing. I mean, there are opportunities to tell, I think, more of the historical background of why things are the way they are in the cave, um, that we don't get a ton of because Herzog is asking different kinds of questions. But I don't know if that's a bad thing necessarily. Um, how much of the depth we find is the depth we ourselves bring? How deep? Can a movie be objectively? Yeah, um, that's from a um, a review of this movie. Hold on, I have it. I want to make sure I credit the person properly. Um, there is it is a from. Oh, okay. This is from a review slash article by Daniel Garrett in the January 2014 edition of Offscreen. It says, a sort of critical of the way Herzog is making this movie and how, how deep it is. He says, how much of the depth we find is the depth that we ourselves bring? As always, whether meaning exists and what that meaning is, is very much up to each of us. So, you know, it's sort of critical about how he he felt like Werner Herzog was imposing his own um, interpretation on what he's learning in asking if this is, you know, possibly the the origins of the human soul or documenting the human soul or human imagination. I kind of agree with the guy. <laughs> I think I think for me, um, if you have a documentary like something I mentioned earlier, a blackfish or something like that, that has an idea of, of the kind of depth it wants to reach in order to tell you the kind of narrative it wants to display. If you want to showcase, look what they do to this animal, that sort of thing. This is a very different kind of documentary in the sense that it is it is it, the movie never even really openly says we're doing this so we can help preserve this. And that's what you might assume as documentarians, because no one's been allowed in there with a camera like this before them and likely won't be after. Um, but their focus is not really on that. Their focus is on what these caves mean and, and their, you know, emotional impact on, 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 on them in a way. Um, I think that is where you bring the depth yourself in a way because if you are not sitting there thinking about og as we've named him um <laughs> and what og was doing and why that was interesting to you and and you're not thinking about and, and 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 you're not if your imagination is not sparked 
by the animals and the paintings and the way the cave is, has decayed over time and the way it's preserved over time, then you're not going to bring a ton of depth to this. It's going to be background noise of loud choral movements set to the same images over and over again. Because there is a point where you're seeing the same paintings. There are several very specific paintings that it's clear that Herzog really likes. He likes the two rhinos that are clashing heads. He likes the horse head wall. Um, and you see a lot of that over and over. And if you can't in, ingest some of your, your own creativity and your own ideas of what that means into it, I think this could be a really boring movie otherwise. Oh, yeah. yeah. I can, yeah, I can I don't see wanna... people watching this movie and going, oh, get on with it. It's so dull. You know, there are long stretches where it's just music and just very slow pans. It's 15 minutes at the end of the movie. Wall. Yeah, it is. It's a, there's a 15-minute shot at the end of the movie that is... It, I, I can tell David has thoughts on it. I found it kind of cathartic because <laughs> at a certain point, I had heard enough of the talking heads and Albert Einstein throwing sticks and stuff, and I was just ready to be like, just show me it all now. Kind of give me, give me the... Give me the the cursory tour of this after the fact. And I found that really compelling. Um, I could, if, I never could have gotten through this in high school. <laughs> this would have been 10 minutes of, of history class. I would have been out like a light <laughs> in this movie. Um, so you, you got to be the right kind of person for this. And you have to be the right kind of person, I think, to put as much into it as you're going to get out. And if you're just not inherently interested in this sort of thing, it's going to be a very boring movie. And I, I don't want to make it sound like I was bored by it. I, I wasn't. I found a lot of this very, very interesting, very fascinating. I, I've already expressed, you know, there's not, uh, there's not much here for me to, because there's not, stories not being told. Werner Herzog is telling us how much he loves these caves and, and has people who are experts in these caves being like, here's the caves and here's what we found. And that's all really neat. And this movie for me is very neat. Um, it was, it never just like grabbed me and pulled into my soul. Uh, I kind of, kind of like Brett, I was expecting there to be something that was going to, uh, I don't know, be, be something a little bit deeper than what was here. Uh, I, I, I there's a, there's a couple of, of movies that I think of. One is uh, the, the search for General So, which is all about, General So's chicken, and it talks about the history of, of who he was and how that started. But then it turns into this really interesting story towards the end about why there's so many Chinese food places that are all so similar. Uh, and it becomes. And why there are Chinatowns in remote regions of the Midwest. <laughs> yes, yes. yes. Are you telling me not pronounced General Tao? <laughs> TSO? General yeah. So's? What? This is new to me. All right. Now. Okay. The more. No, there are, there are variations. I've seen General yeah. So, General Gao, General yeah, Gao, you know. Uh, yeah. But the, but anyway, gen, but so like it, it starts off this thing of like, oh yeah, you know this dish. What was its origin? And uh, by the way, like here's a story about what happens to Chinese immigrants when they come here, and 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 I, I found that all very fascinating. And uh, Jiro dreams of sushi is a hard one to bring up in the same context because that has such an interesting, layered, beautiful story in it uh but it kind of ends up being about like well sushi making is becoming this lost art and also you know overfishing for stuff like sushi is having this impact that we have to sort of 
sort of wrestle with that came up towards the end. And I really missed that here of like, there was just, it, it was, it was cave paintings and it's, and that's, it's great. It's great. They're beautiful cave paintings. I loved seeing those beautiful long lingering shots, but I just, it never became about anything else. And I think it's for an hour and a half. Yeah. It's an hour and a half. (laughs) The film plays with it a little bit because what I thought was going to happen was there's a moment in which they, they Einstein takes them to a museum so he can show them various artifacts from similar time periods in different places that show the record. It's a French scientist who. His name is not Einstein. <laughs> strongly resembles. I, I know. Yeah, I know it is not. It is just he. The second I saw him with that mustache and I know. Hair, I was so, like, so oh, and, <laughs> and now I can't unsee it. But he takes him to show these various artifacts that that give context to the fact that you know the idea of this imagery and having you know uh, women in these in these in this artistic representation and in this certain way. This was across other other places as well and i was fully expecting especially as they mentioned a couple other caves in the area to see them and 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 herzog quickly reigns that back in he shows you just enough of other of other stuff to give you context to what he just showed you in the cave he doesn't make this about anything else other than that cave um which i think goes two ways right like that's his creative decision and i i respect that i might have been even more interested if i gotten a little bit out of similar similar discoveries and that sort of thing. I'm going to move us along here a little quicker because we have like three, four discussion topics. We're going to rapid fire these because we're near the end of the episode. Um, the film was filmed in 3d uh, for vast majority of it. Herzog thought that 3d was appropriate to really show the caves. Does it lose something without the 3d? Uh, none of us watched it in 3d. Yeah. It's, I, so it's I hard to ask. I can't imagine. I, I, I used to own a 3d TV. I've seen a lot of movies on it. Um, I just can't. I mean, it adds depth, right? I feel like people expect 3D to pop out of you, but in reality, what it does is add depth. It's what it should be. And that might have been right when it's done well. And that might have been cool with like the cave walls and stuff. I think as long as you're watching this in HD and on a decent display, you're going to get the beauty pretty well. I don't know if 3D is necessarily a, a requisite. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I Herzog had to be talked into 3D. He he thought it was just a gimmick and didn't under, didn't see any reason to do it. But after his first uh, like one hour foray into the cave, um, he was like, you know, somebody had been trying to talk him into it. And after he went in there, he was just like, oh, okay, I mm-hmm. see. Yeah, you really there's there are different effects created you know with the light and the the different depths in the cave and you know sometimes they work the you know like a, a curve of the cave wall into the shoulder of a bison to really give it that extra oomph you know sort of thing yeah. this is also just so peak weird. 3d trend time but i mean i i agree that if it you know i would if you're going to rent this definitely go for hd um mm-hmm just to get the best picture you can. I mean, they couldn't bring the very best cameras in because those suckers are big and heavy and generally require tracks and they couldn't bring any of that stuff in. It all had to be handheld. Um, But it's what they do get and the definition they do get, I think is definitely worthy of a higher definition image. And, And you'll get a lot out of it that way. 
Absolutely. And, and I think whoever was trying to convince them to do it, this was peak 3D time, right? Everything coming out in theaters in 2010 had a 3D showing, and we still kind of have that I nowadays. <laughs> yeah, but po- like the two years post-Avatar, people love their 3D showings. Um, well, I, uh, I, don't, I, I don't think uh, the person doing it was just like, ah, oh, it should be in 3D because everything is in 3D. I think he just was like, hey, you know what would be a really good way to show the contours of the wall and the texture would be 3D. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I also want to bring up the lighting in the cave and the way they used it in terms of the limited lighting they're able to bring in. Um, there's a very DIY nature of the film in a way that Herzog openly admits at the beginning where he's like, we can't hide the crew and everyone's doing multiple jobs. And he shows you, you know, one crew member that's holding the boom is also doing a clap to sync the audio and the video and all sorts of other stuff. And you see with these box lights they have that they're holding on to the battery powered ones. There's a lot of shots, especially in the beginning where they'll have uh, like painting of a rhino and they will be moving the box uh, in the background to slowly unveil the rhino. And this is something they do several times in the movie. They will take the lights and actually create their own manual um, changes in lighting particularly a lot of times they'll leave things in darker spaces at several times. I was like, is my TV just getting really dark right now? Because they'll move the light through as if like a torch was passing through in a way, which I'm sure is probably the intention. And then they'll leave it darker. And uh, I thought that was very interesting. It was an interesting stylistic choice to try to mimic how these might be seen under firelight um, without it being, too kitschy i think it works pretty well did you guys also notice that oh yeah yeah and then and then also the color grading of the film i wanted your guys thoughts on it because i thought it was very weird um everything outside so the drone shots of the french countryside the interviews outside talking to einstein throwing sticks um everything is very washed out and white and gray and olive green and and there's he's purposely color grading on a much i'm not sure the right terminology but it's much whiter and washed out than i think the camera's actually picking up and i'm curious as to why he did that i would suspect i mean i i don't know uh for certain but i would suspect it's because that's how the world would look after you come out of the cave after you've been oh that's interesting long time everything would look extra bright and washed out and a little harder to look at that's interesting i didn't think of that okay yeah i i i don't i don't don't dislike it i just thought it was an interesting decision on his behalf um and then let's also well two more quick discussion topics here first one as nicole mentioned earlier proto cinema is what herzog calls the animals to have more legs right like a bison with eight legs to show motion because the legs are in different spots so what's the importance of capturing the motion that we see uh does that increase the importance of film in general um wow that's a heavy one nicole um <laughs> because film is is such an excellent medium for capturing yeah. motion versus right. you know, still photography or whatnot absolutely and that, that ties back to i think what i was mentioning earlier for me at least of this was so much more impactful for me for them to walk me through this than it would have been to have gone through a book of professional photos of this place. 
Yeah, I think also partially these people are telling stories with the, the, the you know Og and his crew. Uh, they're you know they're they're probably telling stories about you know he's like I, I saw this this pack of horses and uh, you know drew up drew up these horses or like they're talking about this this fight between these two rhinos. You know, I think it's it's a way of them capturing what they've seen around them uh, and and putting you know in. To get, and human beings are storytellers, and this is a, a way that they passed on their story. Yeah, who knows? Maybe it was like the right, first no picture books. You know, yeah. they made like one painting with some movement captured in it and just sort of stood there and moved their torches around and told the story, you know, told the tale of the great rhino hunt of, you know, 3285 BC or whatever. <laughs> Yeah, and, and I didn't even think about that going into that, that, that they would add multiple legs, like rushing to show movement. I thought that was just, not all the animals were like that, but, but I thought it was cool when it did show that. Yeah, I mean, I also thought it was interesting. There was a, a, a little bit in passing that of, you know, our, our modern world that they did. There are two scientists. You know, I thought it was really interesting that the scientists are all holed up in like a sports complex. Not too far yeah. from the caves, doing all their analysis, um, and there's this one pair in particular that are who are trying to find out the se- figure out the sequence of, you know, when the wall was primed, what they had to do first. Like, so there's some patches on the cave walls that are lighter, and is it that they cleaned the wall before they painted it, or did they paint over something previously and then paint on top of it? Um, and so they're trying to figure out the sequence, and they have these drawings of what they think the sequence was and it looks for all the world like a comic book it looks like a graphic novel of how these things were painted and it's like are we looking at an, the natural next steps you know you get the one panel with uh, extra limbs to show movement and then you get multiple panels to show one movement to the next movement and the, the, the series of things and then we get the film overall that that sort of strings together all the movements seamlessly right um i just thought that it was sort of interesting i don't know if it was an intentional meta commentary or something that i was just reading into it but i just thought that was added a, an extra dimension to it for me Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's, we'll wrap down. I know we're running a, a smidge long, but man, those cave paintings, they'd be interesting. Um, is this a future classic? Let's, let's present this to the panel. Um, Nicole, I'm going to make you go last because you brought it to us. So I will have David go first. David, is this in your mind a classic in some capacity? Uh, documentaries are so hard to, to, to say if it's a classic or not. I think from an educational standpoint, it is very important. Uh, I think for documentaries, I have to ask myself, can I see them doing a documentary now episode? about Cave of Forgotten Dreams. And I don't think I can. I don't think that this has the... I don't know. It doesn't have the story... The documentary Now is a parody. Yeah, Documentary Now is a parody series uh, on IFC. And I think yeah, later on, it, it comes on to, to Netflix, uh, made by Bill Hader and Fred Armisen, hmm. um, in which they, they parody famous documentaries or documentary styles. I wouldn't be surprised if they did a whole Werner Herzog style 
episode. Um, but I, I don't want to say it's not important. It doesn't have its place. I just have a hard time saying this is a classic personally. All righty. Uh, on my end, I think historically it's, it's undoubtedly remarkably important because this is again, why would the French let anyone else in at this point? You already let Werner Herzog in and he did a beautiful job capturing everything. And there's not a, an immense amount of stuff to capture in terms of what he didn't because a lot you just can't access and probably won't ever be able to. So I think in the capacity of him likely being the only person to ever make something like this, that is that falls into a realm of future classic for me, if not even in the capacity that this could be shown in schools, archaeology courses, the college students studying something like this for many, many, many years to come because it's a one of a kind. And I think that's very rare in filmmaking. Even for documentaries, sometimes a lot of documentaries tread ground that others have and look at it with a fresh set of eyes or in a different way. And this is really the only thing on this in film. And I think that's remarkable. And it's a classic to me in that regard. Um, I also think it's a kind of film that's really going to bore you unless you're excited about these cave paintings and want to inject your own ideas and creativity into what, what might have been. And if that's just not something that's your speed, you're, I don't think you're going to enjoy it very much, especially because it is 90 minutes of stationary stuff and kind of over the top music at times, the orchestration's a little much. So I think this is one of those films I would classify as, yes, I think it'll be a classic with the stipulation that this is the kind of classic film that will be shown to students for many years to come in the same way that we've classified future classic films for being classic in the sense that film students will watch them for years to come. I think that archaeology students and all that sort of thing, anthropology students are all going to watch this for many years to come. So that's my take. Nicole, do you have any final thoughts on it? Uh, actually, Brady, I, I pretty much almost completely agree with you. Um, in rewatching this, it was you know, this isn't as as strictly cinematic as I remembered it. You know, there are some very beautiful parts, but there's also there are also bits where it's very uh, choppy and jittery, where they have the lower quality camera and it's all handheld and clearly not as as smooth as they would have liked it to be. Um, but you know, and and I do, but I do think they're going to be showing it to students for you know, decades to come. And, and it's an important documentation of the inside of the actual cave and not just the reproduction. Um, it's also, I think, a, an interesting document and a classic in the sense of really capturing a bit of who Werner Herzog is um, and what he's like as a, as a person and a filmmaker. Um and how intrigued he is by his own subjects that he studies. Um, I don't know that I would... This is one that you can watch more than once, I think, and that's kind of rare in documentaries. Um, I think probably more people would say that uh, Grizzly Man is going to be seen as a classic documentary, but that was a little bit too old 
uh, for me to bring forward as the future classic. Um, and I think it's already kind of in the pantheon of classic documentaries. I think Werner Herzog probably has a few more in him, uh, you know, barring any health emergencies, you know, God willing, knock wood. Um, so, I mean, I, I do think it's a classic in a sense. It's not as strong a candidate as some, but like I said, I wanted to bring in a documentary. Um, I've got some ideas for the future for bringing documentaries that I think I'll actually want to discuss with you guys off mic first. <laughs> um, but, you know, I'm, I'm glad we watched it. I think it's it definitely has some classic value, but I'm not sure it would be a classic in the classical sense. So, very good. It's now, for debate, I would say. I want to close here with uh, a discussion topic we, we never really fully addressed, which was Are there any documentaries of the rewatch value? As we close, why doesn't everyone give one or two other documentaries that they might recommend to the audience? So, um, Nicole, do you want to? Uh, recent documentary. Um, that I've seen that I would definitely recommend. It can be distressing in part, but it's really fascinatingly made is uh, Tower, uh, which is about the shootings on the University of Texas campus uh, back in the late 60s. You know, a guy went up in the clock tower with a sniper oh, rifle and right. ammo and started shooting people at random on a very hot day. Um, and it's partly... Uh, archival footage and it's partly animated uh, with actors to reenact what happened because some of the people who were there have passed away and can't be interviewed um, or take part actively in the documentary so um, and the you know the animation really draws you in in a big way um, and it's it's visually extremely interesting to watch. Um, so I would I would absolutely recommend that. And I think just a personal one that grabbed me when I was a teenager was something I found in the library called Dear America: Letters Home from Vietnam, um, which is just letters home from soldiers in Vietnam read by various celebrities huh. um, and dramatized. Um, by their readings, and it just sort of humanizes uh, people in the conflict and what it might have been like to be there without actually, you know, being one camera on the ground following a unit in time. It's it's allowing you to get a to see the wide range of people who went over there and why and how they felt about being there. Very cool. And David, what about you? Do you have any any uh, quick? Uh, documentary recommendations for people uh geo dreams of sushi i mentioned earlier you should watch it if you haven't already it's great um it's on netflix uh another one that is on netflix currently is amy the amy winehouse documentary oh yeah is it's, it's fascinating look into her life um yeah. very complicated figure very sad um and the last one i just want to throw out there quickly is called sour grapes it is an American crime documentary about a wine fraudster uh, that is about this guy who for a while just like appeared on the wine scene 
and uh, made all this money and sold all these really rare wines. And it it, it turned out that uh, he was faking it, and that the whole process behind oh. that is super fascinating. And there's there's a lot of layers to it. It's very thorough and very interesting. Uh, so so check that out. Sour grapes is what it's called. I will have to look for that one as a as a uh, big wine aficionado. Oh, I think you'd like it a lot. It's really good. <laughs> right on. Uh, my recommendations. Uh, I'll give two quick ones. I think if you've never seen Twenty Feet from Stardom, it's remarkable. It's something you can definitely watch multiple times. Directed by Morgan Neville, who has kind of become a pretty pretty important documentarian. In modern culture, he's also the the director of "Won't You Be My Neighbor" um, from last year, which people loved. So, if you've never seen that, it's all about you know the uh, the backup singers to all your favorite artists of the 20th century and how they don't get their dues and just you know they're literally 20 feet from stardom. And it's it's a remarkable documentary. Um, as controversial as he is, I do think a lot, particularly of his early career. I think a lot of Michael Moore's documentaries hold a special place for me in becoming interested in film. Uh, Bowling for Columbine is will always be a very special movie to me as someone who grew up around that area, um, as someone who has very strong feelings about that sort of thing. I think Bowling for Columbine is the perfect mix of strong documentarian analysis of this community combined with the gut-punching, aggressive style of how Michael Moore decides to deal with people he doesn't like. And I think that if you are into him, I think that's his best work. So uh, let's go around the table and see where we can find everybody else online. Nicole Davis, what about you? I take care of our Facebook page at facebook.com slash podcast, and you can find me personally on Letterboxd under Nicole underscore Davis. Very good. What about you, David? Broke by Mountain Podcast, which I do with Phil Root, and also run the internet under the username Davluz. That is D A V L U Z. So Twitter and Instagram, find me there. Very good. Find me on Twitter at I am Brett Stewart. You can find everything I do over there. Reminder: next week is around the world. We're going to be watching Roma, the Alfonso Cuarón movie. It's on Netflix. It's a Netflix movie, so it's not going away anytime soon. Be sure to check it out if you'd like to follow along. We'll see you then. <laughs> <laughs>